0: You know, I think I did have the instinct in me growing up, but it was sort of tamped down by my parents, which is ironic because my dad was a pharmacist and he had his own store. So he was an entrepreneur in a sense, but he never really viewed it as a uh, as a business. He viewed it more as like a job. But it was uh,
1: his shingle. It was his business.
0: Yeah. They wanted me to be a lawyer and they couldn't imagine being an entrepreneur at all. And look, I'm happy the way things turned out, but it is... <laughs> a little unfortunate that i wasn't able to i didn't have any kind of entrepreneurial boost as a kid even though it, it really was something that i
1: felt all along well it sounds so. like you didn't need one because you were too busy being a teenage rebel
0: yeah
1: right <laughs> this is yeah. essentially three decades of teenage rebellion against your father <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you consider this as of now a success story given that you you've raised as much as you have i mean you've started businesses before where do you think you are in the process as far as what you where you anticipated you'd be by now
0: i mean i'd say we have had a successful run so far and we've accomplished everything we wanted to do but i wouldn't call us a success story until we have a successful event for our investors. You know, there's never, it's, this is not a fairy tale. There's not a happily ever after kind of situation. Hopefully the business will live on in perpetuity for in one form or another. But to put some kind of point on it, I think getting those early investors, especially getting them a return on what they put in and, and something for the confidence they showed in me, that would be the, the real success point.
1: Well, I think, yeah, most entrepreneurs aren't going to think of success as reaching a certain plateau. You know, I mean, I guess eventually you're going to have an exit and you're going to have the incentive to start the next thing. And so there's always something new to do, something new to achieve. So I get that. I guess I was just kind of getting a sense of you can't just say, isn't solar power great? You know, you have to say it is great, but look how much energy we have under contract. Look how much we've done to secure revenue streams. We need to think in terms of practical discussion. We need to talk about this is where your ROI comes in. I
0: have always said that one of the issues with a lot of sustainable businesses is that they are not sustainable financially. It's a wonderful thing to have a business that does good for the world, good for people. But if you don't have the margin, you can't, execute on the mission. And we need to emphasize the return on investment for people.
1: So your message is, yeah, sustainable energy is no good without sustainable cash flow. (laughs) Right,
0: exactly.
1: (laughs) I really enjoyed my research about you yesterday, given your background in journalism. Mm -hmm. I think that's fascinating in terms of when you're trained to impart the who, what, when, where, and why and to do it in a pithy way, in an entertaining way, but in a thorough way, that's got to be an asset for you as a CEO, isn't it?
0: Oh, I always say that the uh, training I got, not just in my master's degree in journalism, but in my several years as a writer at CNN, that was the best training I've had for my career. It was a um, intense atmosphere, having to get copy on the air with you know, sometimes seconds to spare. And having to do it as in a way that communicates the message of what happened without taking five minutes to do so, it helped me with a very strong ability to communicate. And that, I would say, especially written communication. And that goes across every aspect of business, whether it's communicating to employees, communicating to customers, to investors, to the general public, to other shareholders. It comes into play no matter what you do. It helped built me as a better entrepreneur, a better business leader.
1: I'm really curious about that too. You mentioned mostly textually because i you know, in that time, that was essentially the, the one medium to get your message out. You know, you had to craft a sentence and that doesn't come easy. Uh, You get used to it after a while, you get used to having to adhere to a deadline and come up with something and get your point across And you develop that acuity and you develop that facility with the written word. But now that you see so many other media, so many other ways to reach people, how does someone who wants to study journalism now, knowing that your lead may be a TikTok video, your lead may be a podcast, you know, how does what you learned 20 some years ago adapt to what's happening now, do you think?
0: Oh, it's a it's a totally different ball game. My daughter is about to start journalism school at Maryland, and um, is she?
1: Oh, right, yeah. yeah.
0: It's completely different. I mean, they're learning about web design. They're learning about podcasting. Uh, they're learning about video editing. I mean, we we did a little bit of back, that back in the day, but today the video editing is so much more advanced than everything you could do on your laptop compared to what
1: we had a room full of machines to do it. Yeah. You have um, have a whole studio in your pocket, essentially. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and they're learning about all the various social media platforms. And it's not just about the ability to do the who, what, when, where, and why anymore, but it's about being kind of your own content creator, because you might not actually have a long-term career at a corporation or something. There are very few out there. (laughs) So,
1: (laughs) And you got to have so, the hook, right? You got to really yeah. be the signal in the noise and try to find that balance between being sensational enough to get clicked on, but also be informative enough to be worth the click. And
0: for a company
1: that has impacts,
0: right? We can't just do the old uh, PR move that, that we would do in the past.
1: So Is that a bad thing, though? <laughs> the, <laughs> the old PR move, to sweep it under the rug? <laughs>
0: yeah. It's more difficult, yeah, because in the old days, at least you you had several outlets, you could get an article published. These days, it's it's harder and harder to get your message out. It's definitely difficult for a small growing business to get our message out.
1: I would bet, yeah, especially, I mean, if you have a bad PR moment, it used to be you had to create this whole strategy and cultivate a plan to get ahead of it. And now it's just, wait 45 seconds. (laughs) It'll pass by. (laughs) The end. Yeah. Because we've reached the point where there is no justice or accountability in anybody ever, yeah, which is difficult for, yeah, I'm a parent of a high school senior and he knows that. And so, I have to, you know, yeah. I have to just remind him that there is some level of structure um, yeah. left on earth. And speaking of a desire for structure in our lives, you are listening to episode 240 of the successfully funded podcast brought to you by Kiwi Tech. We're a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we get started any further, we should also mention there's a brief disclaimer. Well, it's not brief on the actual website, but I'll give you the the quick and dirty right here. KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. KiwiTech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. And if you enjoy that mouthful, you can get the full disclaimer on the website of our podcast, successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. I am your host, Doug French, and I am very excited to talk today with the founder and CEO of Neighborhood Sun, it's definitely a business of its time and I'm look curious to hear about how it came to be, how it became successfully funded and what the future may be with our guest here CEO Gary Skolnick. Gary, glad to meet you.
0: Thank you, Doug. It's great to be on.
1: Anyway, well it's it's great to have you on. I'm really I when I was researching you, I really enjoyed just kind of piecing together your trajectory as an entrepreneur. And I would love to talk during this time we have about what you think went right, but we should rewind a bit and talk a bit about your formative times. And we were talking about your journalism career. So then where did the desire for journalism come from?
0: Well, I I am a person of many interests. So I love journalism because uh, I'm very into politics, current events. I like to be in the know. Uh, I like the freedom that you do have in journalism. It, there is a little bit of an entrepreneurial side to it. It definitely um, piqued my, the part of my personality that loves to do something new. I, I hate routine. I hate monotony. You know, every day there was something new happening in the news. It was never right. the same Right, every twice.
1: day is different. Right, I love that part. Yeah. And that kind of keys into how you've started all these businesses now. I think you just have this sense you, there's a through line between all of these businesses that you've started because you're clearly passionate about sustainable energy and disrupting a lot of very powerful outfits that really would love to keep the status quo because that's where the control is. When you got to journalism school, what would you say was the biggest surprise in terms of what you learned, like what, you, what your expectations were for your education and how it turned out?
0: Okay, I was most surprised in journalism school about the broadcast side of the business. I had experience in high school as newspaper editor and understood newspapers. I did not understand the broadcast side. And, and you see, you watch TV and you see one thing and understanding all the pieces behind it and all the jobs there there are back there and the various things you can do was really pretty eye-opening. And I learned how to shoot videos and edit, how to talk in front of the camera And then, of course, had a right for broadcast news. That was completely different than anything I've done before. Had to kind of knock out the academic side of me and and just really be focused on getting it to someone that could understand what you're saying.
1: Well, it's all about conveying as much as you can, as simply as you can, as quickly as you can. That's right. Um, But I think that's an important skill, as we talked about at the top, just the idea that when you have an investor... Your job is to convey your message, elevator pitch. It's all about elevator pitch. Investors, especially people who know what they're doing, the savvy ones who have invested in a lot of fits, they understand what they're investing in. They understand what the earnings sheet looks like, and they get so many offers that if you have that window of opportunity to reach them, you really got to grab them by the necktie, assuming they're still wearing one, uh, Mm -hmm. when the time comes. So... I mean, we can cut to the chase here a bit just because I I love the journalism background. And then after CNN, you segued straight to Greenpeace.
0: Yeah, more or less. I mean, I've always had an environmental streak. I've always been concerned about it. Uh, In college, I was in my environmental club. And I actually tried to get a job at Greenpeace in uh, the summer when I was in college. And uh, I lasted about three days because... This job was knocking on doors to try to raise money for Greenpeace. And that was not my thing. Very difficult. I have the highest amount of respect in the world for anybody who can knock on doors. So that didn't work out. But after several years of journalism, I came to the conclusion that this was not a career with a real future for someone who wanted to have a family and a more kind of stable life. Cable news it's 24 hours every time you got a promotion you got put back onto the graveyard shift you work weekends there could be travel so i i looked around the newsroom and i saw that most of the folks who were older were like were often divorced or they seemed pretty unhappy people so <laughs> i i decided to sorry to laugh out. at your
1: expense uh sad or older people but i get it <laughs>
0: yeah i mean it was just really it made a huge impression on me that that this is not somewhere i want to stay long term so we i was trying to get into kind of public relations utilizing my journalism skills and uh there was a job opening at greenpeace we had moved up to dc at this point i went in for the interview and it was like the mothership had come home i i felt completely in the right space and it just really clicked so Even though I went in there kind of from a, I'm going to be a press officer for them. It was also because it was Greenpeace, an organization I love and I knew about. And I was very excited to be able to work on the uh, environment for once in my life and get paid for it. Yeah. I could never have a job where I didn't believe in what I was doing. And uh, for me, mission was always very important. So that really was an additional factor, too.
1: What was your role at Greenpeace, and uh, how long were you there?
0: I was a media officer, which basically meant internal PR, trying to get coverage. And I worked on the climate and toxics team. The climate team, that was my graduate-level course in global warming. This was the year 2000. It was still relatively early. We were only a few years past the Kyoto Protocols. Mm-hmm. And I went from zero to a hundred in learning about climate change, its impacts, solutions.
1: With the real fire hose experience, you really had to just kind of oh, yeah. learn a bunch at once.
0: Yeah, it was it was incredible. I, I was only there for a little over a year, but I learned so much. It was a great, fantastic learning experience. The only drawback was that once I got in, I realized that I didn't want to be the uh, the press officer setting up other people to be on TV and, and setting up other people to do the interviews. Uh, I wanted to be the campaigner myself.
1: <laughs> this and, is the CEO mentality. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all neighborhood sun is just a big cult of personality people. That's the bottom line. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
0: And I wanted to, to be the one actually doing the lobbying, making things happen. So that's where I looked around, and, and there was a great position at Sierra Club, which was uh, Washington representative, and I was going to be able to actually be a lobbyist.
1: That's uh, what I'm did. really eager about too. I've never interviewed a lobbyist before. I just to know what your daily life is like, because all we know is that the Beltway is overstuffed with them. Uh, oh yeah, and um, the power that they exert on our legislative process. So um, how long did you serve in that capacity?
0: Well, I wasn't there that, that long either. This was the day <laughs> that I was really trying to find my, my, my career niche, I guess.
1: Well, it was all um, prelude to like, look, I want to run something. You know, I, yeah, wanna, yeah. I have ideas. I want to bring them to life. And I want to be, I want the buck to stop with me. So I, I get that. Uh, exactly. But I'm just, yeah, but I'm curious about how, you know, because it's it must be clear that your experience as an environmental lobbyist informs almost everything you do in terms of figuring out the viability of these sustainable energy programs that you start over and over.
0: Yeah, so the, the thing at Sierra Club is I was lobbying in two places. One was D.C. and one was Annapolis, the capital of Maryland. And the Annapolis lobbying, I was allowed to do sort of on my free time because I had started a uh, campaign on my own to pass a renewable portfolio standard in Maryland, which was a a minimum requirement of clean energy that the utilities have to use. At the time, we were pushing for seven and a half percent, which today sounds like a joke. But back in the year 2001, that was already way too much for the utilities to accept. Right. So the... The DC lobbying was, you know, from a, a grassroots perspective. The Sierra Club's large, but it's still relatively grassroots. Also, not my cup of tea because you typically are meeting with the aides of the senator or the aides of the congressperson. You're not getting direct access. We were not the, the fat cat lobbyists who were hosting dinner parties at a steakhouse and writing thousand dollar checks to to the campaigns and things like that so i I think it would be very different if if i were that kind of lobbyist
1: well if you just gone to the dark side and just started lobbying for big oil that would have been your life right
0: yeah exactly
1: (laughs) So, so yeah doing the right thing often comes with a bit of sacrifice fewer expense accounts
0: yeah so the the dc lobbying of a grassroots group i could tell you people is not very glamorous at all <laughs> now the um the lobbying at this at a state house is far more rewarding there you get to interact directly with the people who actually vote you are in a little more of an equal footing because it's just so small they can't avoid you uh, <laughs> even if you're not <laughs> hosting those large dinner parties that was a, a blast the, the lobbying i did in maryland i look back it was very high pressure and, and frustrating because it takes several years to get a bill passed. Things don't happen immediately. But it was also, um, you get to really meet people, get to know them. You get to see the people on the opposite side. You get to know them too, and they're not all bad people. And there is a real camaraderie there that I, I appreciate. And the key to lobbying in a, in a place like Annapolis or probably any other state house is just showing up. 80% of it is showing up. <laughs> Stick around long enough, you'll bump it to the legislator. You're trying to pigeonhole and get your several minutes with them. Um, That's the that,
1: understanding, right? We're learning about how the state houses and state governments, they're not in the news at all, even though voting for them is just as important, if not more so than the federal people that uh, command all the headlines. But if our federal government is going to remain partisan and log jammed in perpetuity, I mean, do you feel the real future of giving sustainable energy even a bigger leg up and having it permeate more of our daily lives to the point where an electric car becomes customary or or solar panels become far more customary? Do you feel that its future is more easily paid through state governments than the federal one?
0: That's what we've done the last 20 years, and we've made a huge amount of progress at the state level, but there's only so much you can do, and at some point, we do need federal action. I mean, it's different for a state like California. Like California or Texas, they could probably create an entire EV fleet on their own. If California invested in vehicle charging, so you had a a charging spot every couple of miles you would change the entire car industry. But for the most part, we're still not there. So yeah. I do think at, at some point we need more federal action. Absolutely.
1: And it seems like we're going to be like the, the new date gets pushed back five years, every five years, we're going to yeah. be carbon neutral by 2040. And you just wonder if, you know, it's, it's a great goal to have. You just wonder if you'll see it in your own lifetime.
0: It does keep getting pushed back. Meanwhile, the climate is not waiting.
1: So if you were a lobbyist in Montana and had just watched the entire northern part of Yellowstone just wash away by record flooding, what would your thought be in terms of how to get something done?
0: (laughs) If I really knew how to get something done in Montana, I would probably get a very high consulting job, (laughs) high paid consulting job. I, I think what we did in Maryland is replicable in any state. The key things are you want to get a broad coalition. So if you look at Montana, you want to make sure you get the ranchers and the farmers and hunters. You don't want to just look at at progressives or liberals. You want to look at other groups that care about what happens in nature and whether it's because they make money off of it uh, yeah. or because they enjoy their recreation there. Yeah. So I would look at that route. And also, you know, the key is getting some businesses on board. That's a huge part of it, too. And we were able to do that in Maryland with our legislation. And, you know, I'm sure in Montana, you can get some businesses, too, in any state.
1: Yeah, I mean, eventually, you just have to look at the broad picture of how many interests are involved, how many vectors are colliding, and figure out how to get them to kind of go in the same direction for a brief period of time to recognize that everyone could benefit if we move along to that, because now I mean, Neighborhood Sun. This is—is is this your fourth company? I'm looking at Clean Currents, Deeper Green, Our Power. How many in, the, in your litany of companies have you started?
0: Originally, I started a nonprofit called Clean Energy Partnership.
1: And that um, was that your was, segue out of lobbying. That's right. Yeah.
0: Then there was Clean Currents, which I co-founded, and then there was Deeper Green, uh, which was mine as well. That was a, that was really a, a consulting company. Our Power was a program that I ran with a company called Bullfrog Power.
1: So, but if you look at those four companies that clearly must have had an impact in, on your own thought process when it came time to start Neighborhood Sun and fund Neighborhood Sun, it's a broad question in a truncated timeframe, but I am curious if there's a particular takeaway from any of those. That informed your mission statement for Neighborhood Sun or informed uh, what you knew you were going to do in order to get funded and become a sustainable entity.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of commonality. In some ways, I've been saying the same thing for 20
1: years. (laughs) A little (laughs) bit of a broken. I think environmentalists would, uh, (laughs) yeah, I think that's a pretty common refrain. (laughs) Yes. They're sitting by the side of the road with their sign going, please, God, listen to me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But uh, people have been listening. So I've been talking about the need to switch to clean energy, mainly wind power and solar, for over 20 years. And when I started in Maryland, they used to say the solar industry was two guys and a truck. <laughs> and now there are thousands of jobs in the industry, and things have gotten a lot better. I guess the, co- the other commonality that I've always been interested in is using Business as a force for positive change. That goes back to my lobbying days in Annapolis, where I saw that every time we we were pushing for clean energy bills, the opposition would always be businesses.
1: Yeah,
0: and we wouldn't have a single business on our side, and it didn't make sense to me because I knew that businesses, just like people, are split, and some are going to be pro, some con, and so that's how I started my work to look at businesses that were actually in favor of clean energy. And that's when I decided I want to form a business as a force for good to kind of show them how it's done. If all these businesses say, oh, you can't switch to clean energy, then my idea was I'm going to create a business that, that helps people switch to clean energy and supports this kind of legislation. And so that was the genesis of Clean Currents. At Clean Currents, we had a solar division for rooftop solar, and we were selling green energy that people had to pay extra for. So it was really a product that was for the more affluent. You didn't have low or moderate income people at all involved. And that always that was something that always bothered me. Plus, I was also getting into the idea of supporting local businesses. And I didn't like the fact that we were buying wind power from farms that were several states away. So those two ideas of, hey, I want, uh, I want something that is going to support people of lesser means as well as uh, I want to support local power. That was something I was thinking about back at Clean Currents Day. And we actually tried to do a community solar project back in the day with Clean Currents, but the regulations just were not good enough to support it. So when I founded Neighborhood Sun, it was after... We had passed legislation in Maryland that that created the regulations necessary to allow community solar to work.
1: And what I love about Neighborhood Sun, I'd love to talk more about what Neighborhood Sun does, but the name itself, you have a gift for naming things, I think, because if you look at a whole list, there's a very clear uh, implication of what you're trying to achieve. And given that what we've talked about in terms of how all politics is local, it sounds like What Neighborhood Sun is hoping to do is create a widespread appreciation for it, but one community at a time.
0: That's right. And it's not just about creating consumers. We also talk about creating communities. And you can only do that if everyone's buying from the same local source of clean energy. And uh, that's part of what we're trying to do is, is have people feel like, hey, we're in the same boat, we're part of the same group, and we're in this together.
1: So how, how does Neighborhood Sun operate and what has made it such a, an attractive initial prospect for investors?
0: I like to call us the glue that holds together the community solar industry. So on the one side, you've got the solar developers or the asset owners. Those are the companies that build and or own the projects. And the other side, you have all the retail customers, the retail market. Neighborhood Sun sits in the middle. We provide an advanced software platform. We call it Sun Engine, that enables people to enroll with projects in their area, and then it allows the asset owners to manage those projects and to bill the customers and and collect their revenue. So it for us we get paid two revenue streams. We get paid by the asset owners to Acquire customers, that's a one time payment. And then we also get an ongoing fee to manage customers. And that could be for as long as 20 years. So we kind of take that software, we wrap it together with management, and that's our recurring revenue. We are now in states from Colorado and Minnesota all the way over on the East Coast to Maine, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey. Maryland and DC, among others, we've been successfully funded on WeFunder before. Uh, last year, we raised a million dollars. This year, we're at close to seven hundred thousand, and we have a, a round to open right now that is offering a convertible note for people who are interested. Uh, the minimum investment is two hundred fifty dollars. And you know, I'd say the things that differentiate us is we've got the best technology in the business. Our platform has been validated by third parties as better than any of the other competitors out there. Uh, We've got an amazing management team, including uh, our CTO, who was one of the founders of Bullfrog Power and has more experience in building these kinds of software platforms than anybody else in the industry. And we've got a great brand. Very proud that Neighborhood Sun is an authentic Green brand as a B corporation with the highest B core score of any company in the solar industry in the US. We are looking to grow, and that's why we're, we're raising capital right now.
1: Well, it sounds like you have a system that works, and now you're just looking to scale it and looking at this equity raise to try and expand into new markets. And to what extent do you find, as anyone who's trying to disrupt a known process? How much of your job is just explaining how reliable solar is? How many people would just prefer to just keep the status quo? It may be onerous, it may be expensive, but at least I can kind of depend on it most of the time. You've hit the nail
0: on the head. It's, it's 90% of our job as a company is explaining to people how community solar works. Very few people really get it at first. I think about this 24 hours a day, but most people think about it you know five minutes a year.
1: Yes. That's a big um, gap to Ford. <laughs> yeah.
0: People think we are doing rooftop panels. We're not. This is all virtual. You don't have to have a roof. You could be a renter. You could have a house with shade. That's who we are for. This is not rooftop. That's a big challenge for us. As a startup, that, that's a tough challenge because educating a market requires a lot of resources
1: what formats of communication have you used and which ones of those do you think have succeeded most uh, particularly?
0: The the ones that are the best for us that are most difficult to scale, but that are absolutely the best are when we partner with like-minded organizations, whether that's a faith organization that has an environmental group within it or an environmental NGO or a social action group. Those are the, the best avenues because then you get that Trust right away. And once people trust, their mind opens up a little bit and they're willing to listen and understand. They might not say yes, but at least they're willing to listen. So for us, those are the best channels.
1: Getting people to listen in general is just the the, the big chore every time, right? Just the idea of breaking people out of their confirmation bias and actually getting a sense to think critically and look at the numbers and say, wait a minute, this actually is a viable system.
0: Yeah. I mean, getting through the white noise. It's harder and harder for companies these days, and that's where the brand equity comes into play. We work really hard on customer satisfaction. It's one of the things I did learn from my dad. uh, Working in his pharmacy on weekends, I used to work there every other weekend in high school, and the number one thing I learned is that you've got to take care of the customers as quickly as possible and resolve their issues and make sure they leave the store happy.
1: So what has your success been with that communication? Why do you think your message has resonated so well? And where would you like to take it next?
0: Our success has been that people have seen wildfires across the country. They've seen polar ice caps melting. In short, they've seen so many things that are happening with climate change. And they are looking eagerly to be part of the solution. Part of our success is the fact that people see in Neighborhood Sun and the product we offer, Community Solar, an actual way to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, it's a direct way to do so. If you donate money to Sierra Club or Greenpeace or any other environmental group, which I do and which I support, it's indirect. You're donating to them, hoping that they will pass legislation that will have an impact But if you sign up for community solar through Neighborhood Sun, you are directly reducing your emissions. And to date, our customers have reduced thousands of tons of greenhouse gases. So that's number one. We offer a solution, not the solution, of course, but a solution to a problem that is vexing this this planet and that people want to be part of. The second thing is, I I think it goes back to people want to belong to something. Being part of Neighborhood Sun and our community, you are a member of something. You belong. You have a tribe. And it might be one of many tribes that you're part of, but it is something that you feel proud to be part of and you feel connection. And, and I think it just goes down to the basic human instinct that people want to be connected to other people.
1: Well, if I am a homeowner or a home renter, or I, there's some structure around my body, and I want to join Neighborhood Sun. What happens to me when that happens?
0: Well, you would start by going to neighborhoodsun.solar and you would enroll with us with a project in your area. We would then get paid for acquiring you as a customer. What would happen to you as a customer is you would see no change in anything in your house or apartment or what have you, but you would see that your electric bill will go way down. It'll go down. 80 or 90%. Then we do bill you, we invoice you for the for the power that that you got. Uh, but we always invoice you at a discount to whatever your credit was. So let's say you saved $100 on your electric bill. We would send you a bill for $90, meaning you saved 10%. Okay. Uh, for low and moderate income people, we would send you a bill for $75, meaning you save 25%. And that's, and I, that's it. That's, it's as simple as
1: that. How did you get that message out? And is it one of those things that can build on itself?
0: The proof is in the performance. So last year, we grew from 12 megawatts that we were managing to having over 70 megawatts by the end of the year. That was equal to about 4,000 customers. We are now at 13,000 customers as of June of 2022. Wow. So the message is spreading. We're getting thousands of new customers. We are adding tens of new megawatts to our portfolio that we're managing. And our booked revenue, total contracted book revenue from last year, we booked $28 $28 million, which means that over time, because it's, it's a recurring revenue, that's what we're going to get from what, what we contracted. Word of mouth obviously helps quite a bit because it's it's a low cost acquisition for us if, if it is word of mouth.
1: And it fits that whole community zeitgeist as well, because if people within a community start talking to each other, you build these vortexes of, of interest. Yeah, exactly.
0: And that's been like some of the best Things we've had were when, when one of our customers would post on their local community listserv. We had a customer do that recently. And he said, oh, I just signed up with Neighborhood Sun, da, 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 it's great. And three or four other people that same listserv said, oh, we've been customers for a year. Or, Oh, I signed up six months ago. It's fantastic. And then from there, you get a dozen new signups. And that it doesn't go much better than that.
1: I am sensing a uh, strategic partnership with Nextdoor.com. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's um, right. As we near the end of our discussion, I wanted to ask: This is, I think, by by most respects, a really successful crowdfunding campaign so far, and has great potential. Clearly, you do have a positive cash flow system to display proudly to people who would get involved. But uh, for anybody who might be just starting out, something with a particular goal, what are the prime directives you would offer someone now in your position to help others reach it?
0: I think for someone who's starting out now and, and looking at our success, the, the things that are important are one is you've got to have obviously 100% belief in what you're doing. Uh, you've got to have a very thick skin, be extremely persistent You have to be willing to take risks. Uh, It really is true that the entrepreneurial mindset is all about your willingness to, to be comfortable with risk and uncertainty. If you're on that scale of one to 10 and you're kind of at the lower end of ability to stomach a risk or uncertainty, I would not recommend this, this lifestyle for you. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) you've got to go out there and, Can't wait until everything is perfect, every I is dotted, every T is crossed. Go out there with your idea, build the airplane as you fly. And finally, you've got to be your own champion. No one else is going to do it for you. You've got to uh, get out there and be comfortable and bragging a little bit and tooting your own horn and just explaining why you've got the best idea and that you're the best person to do this. So I, I think it's, uh, I think entrepreneurship and starting a business is a great way to have a professional career, not for everybody, but it is extremely rewarding if, if you can take the
1: risk. Do you have an example of like a particular risk that you took that paid off?
0: Well, time? I mean, it's, it's all risks. When I first started Neighborhood Sun at the very beginning, before I even had my first employee I actually got a job offer that was a perfect job for me. That would have paid very well, and it was it was related to entrepreneurship, but it was a government job. That for whatever a bunch of reasons, it was very good. I rejected that job after many hard nights thinking about it, and with my spouse's support, that was a huge. I was going to
1: say, yeah, partners are great, aren't they? Just that you can have someone to get out of your own head and kind of offer a different perspective that you trust.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's one. When we signed our first contracts with solar developers, we really didn't have much of a choice to tell them what would work and what wouldn't work. So whatever they wanted, we said, sure. (laughs) That that was a risk that we were willing to take. We're like, okay, I don't know if this is going to work, but we'll, let's sign the contract and we'll make it work. And some of those contracts actually did not work out, but some did, and that's that's how we were able to get off the ground.
1: Well, Gary, it's been great to talk to you about this. I'm I'm really interested in, in solar energy myself, as you might have gathered. Do you think we're going to have electric planes in someone's lifetime?
0: Oh yeah, they're already exist out there. I mean, they're very small. They're like these little two seaters, but uh,
1: like commercial um, airplanes. Well, we, can you fly Delta on an electric flight in the next uh, fifty years?
0: I would think so. Uh, Or it might be hydrogen, but uh,
1: there's definitely going to (laughs) be. The humanity. What a great way to end a podcast. (laughs) We're glad to have people on periodically who can talk about how they've reached that first step. I'm sensing that you have a bit more growth in mind because you would like to kind of achieve that national platform before you become an acquisition target or go public. I mean, is that fair to say, or do you, did you talk about exits much, or are you still talking about, this is an important thing that needs to be done and we know how to do it and make money at it?
0: The, uh, the exit conversation ironically starts from day one of a business.
1: So there you go. That's a good tip.
0: We, we get questions about that all the time. And the community solar market is so hot right now. There's so many exciting players. There's so much growth that, I don't say we're years off or potentially very short term could look at an exit. Or, you know, we, if we decide to, if we want to grow on our own and have a larger exit down the road, then that could be possible too.
1: Do you feel prescient at all? Having been in business for a couple of years, or do you feel lucky at all? Cause you keep yeah. saying like, don't oh, yeah. put it off. Don't dot every I just get in, put the exactly. canoe in the river and see where it takes you exactly Um, so is there prescience or luck or a little bit of both or what do you think
0: it's uh, a lot of it is timing yeah and it's just lucky timing so we got in the community solar market at exactly the right time and it's just taken off since then so i feel very fortunate for that
1: and as we as we sign off today gary please let us know where's the best place to get in touch with you or to see what uh neighborhood sun is doing and how the current raise is going along
0: Well, you could check us out out at NeighborhoodSun.Solar. If you want to check out our raise, it's at WeFunder.com slash NeighborhoodSun. And you can also follow us on all your major social media platforms.
1: Marvelous. Gary, it's been great to talk to you. I, I love talking to entrepreneurs about this sort of thing, especially given it seems like the confluence of a lot of interests in your life have come to fruition here. And so I wish you all the best of luck with it and I'm uh, look forward to seeing how it goes. So really, thanks for talking with me today.
0: Thank you, Doug. It was really a great conversation. I appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you.
1: And everyone, you have been listening to episode two four zero of the successfully funded podcast. That once again was Gary Skolnick, the founder and CEO of Neighborhood Sun. I'm Doug French, and we will see you next week. Thanks.